Well, good morning. Good morning. You got to liven up a little bit here if I'm going to preach to you. I, I do want to ask you guys, by way of announcements, if you would try and create an opportunity for some prayer this week for, you'll notice on the back of your bulletin, I think Jason mentioned that this week we will be gathering as a region of churches, the region that we are a part of in Sovereign Grace, for the purpose of prayer, really for the purpose of applying what we've been studying here on Sunday mornings of drawing near to God. And so the 10 churches that are in our region and the pastors that are leading those churches will be gathering together. The whole pastoral team will be headed over to uh, Florida to join these men on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday to pray together, fast together, and seek God for this coming year and all that God wants to do in our churches. And we need, this is, you know, I've said this many times and I continue to bang this drum because I, I think it's a sobering reality that we are living in some dark times that are only becoming darker. And that is not simply because the news items that you are seeing every week are really, really bad. Um, there's a darkness that gets into our thinking and our pursuit of life that far precedes the day that it becomes news items that are horrific. So we have been in dark times for a while, and those dark times are increasing. And our only hope is the nearness of God, the power of God, the reality of who God really, really is, and all that he can do in our lives. And our learning to look to him, our learning to receive from him, our learning to get from God what we need to get from God. And so that's... Uh, that's, that's just something that I know is in the heart of God for us as a local church, but also for other churches and for pastors. All of us are needing the nearness of God in our lives. So that's Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of this week, and your prayers would be very much appreciated. Well, we're going to continue another thought in the category of drawing near this morning. I'm going to title this morning, Forgetting and Forsaking God. Let me start with a question. This is week number three or week number four of the topic. We've had three weeks behind us of engaging this topic. And you can now take a moment to take your temperature and see... Is this making any difference in you drawing near to God? Or is it just becoming some good shelf material? Just more messages on God to add to the many other messages on God that we encounter? Or am I beginning to draw near to God differently? Am I experiencing something of the nearness of God in a fresh way, in a deeper way, in an impacting way, in a meaningful way in my life. If I'm not, this is a good moment to panic. Because, you know, we're, we're just a gathering of dry bones. Remember that image? Can these dry bones live? I don't know, Lord, you know. Dry bones listen to messages a certain way until the life of God breathes on them and animates them. Listen, we're not being animated to draw near to God. Then, then we should be panicking. Start to panic. Consider panicking now. Install panic this morning. 
Because I know God's meeting with us. But if we're not reachable, it's part of the reason why we're in this series. Because God wants more of us. God doesn't need more from us. All that needed to ever get accomplished in the kingdom of God for the sake of the gospel has been accomplished by someone besides us. But God wants more of us, as Peter led us this morning in communion. Drawing near is about what God wants of us. He has restored us to himself for a reason. And drawing near is about that. So, depending on where we're at and how we're responding, question is, do you believe... That drawing near is an optional item in the Christian life and an inconsequential item in the Christian life. Right? There's some essentials, but drawing near, you know, I don't know if I'm getting about that. I don't know if I'm really going to make some major changes to make that happen in my life. Well, then you just answered the question. In your life, you believe it is optional. You can be a Christian and have drawing near experiencing the nearness of God is an option. And if you don't get around to it and you never experience it, well, you know, you could be a Christian and be that. And apparently we believe that it's inconsequential as well, right? So if I don't do this, there's not any consequences in my life. If, if I live, as we said a week or two ago, with God in the condition of farness from God, I'm a Christian, but God is far in my experience there won't be any consequences to that. Uh, all right, well, I think, we're, I think we're not biblically accurate if we're thinking either of those thoughts. We cannot live that way. And there are consequences to us choosing to live that way. And the writer of Hebrews was all over that. Let me get a quick run through a few thoughts in Hebrews just to start us this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence, let us then, I love that word then, it points to something, it's drawing a conclusion, all this stuff is being said, all right, well then, then let's do this, well let us do what? Let us draw near. Since a bunch of things that just got presented to us in Hebrews are true and they're important and they're valuable, as a result of all that, <coughs> let us draw near to the throne of grace. Why? Well that may, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. All right, that's got consequences in it. Do you read the Bible the way I read the Bible? That has consequences in it. So if I don't draw near, well then where are you going to receive help in your time of need? Where, where's it coming from? Because the Bible says it comes from the nearness of God. But I treat it like it's inconsequential. I don't make room for it. I don't do it. But yet I'm thinking there won't be any consequences to that. Well, the Bible says otherwise. Hebrews 10, verse 19, right? In Hebrews 4, we install drawing near. Hebrews 10, writer comes back to it again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter, right? We have a reason to be able to enter. So there's this big presentation about something that's happened so that we can enter into the presence of God. So that we can draw near the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, right? Since all this has happened, let us draw near. Listen, what's amazing in Hebrews is when it brings us to this place of 
do this, it's because of this. So something's happened that now says we can do this now. Well, what's happened? Well, the gospel happened. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Because without him and without his work, you and I cannot draw near because of our sin. Our sin has made a separation between you and your God. That's what the Bible says. So there's a condition in which you and I live that we couldn't draw near if we wanted to. We couldn't draw near on our best day. We couldn't draw near if we summed up every degree of eagerness that we could come up with. We still couldn't draw near until the gospel took place. The person of Jesus Christ came and lived as the perfect man, broke down the barrier, shed his blood to forgive our sins, and now has opened the way for us to be in communion with the living God. So he has restored us to God. But what's interesting is when Hebrews presents this restoration, it presents all this work has taken place. Here's the gospel. And then it says, now as a result, let us draw near. Now this is, this is you know, if you're one of these theological eggheads, and I applaud you if you are, I, I hope that I am, uh, you are paying attention to terminologies. And so in the world of theology, there is the gospel. And then there's man's response to the gospel. And then there are some people who debate that those things are connected. Right, well, I don't really care where you are in that regard. Oh, I do, but I'm not going to make a big point out of that. This verse does something. It speaks of the gospel and all that it accomplished, all that it did, all that is settled. And then it turns around and tells you to do something. Right? If you've been around the church for a while, there are indicative statements and there are imperative statements. There are things that are done that you didn't make them happen. They happen without your permission. They happen without your knowledge. They happen because God is gracious and merciful and does what he's going to do, even though his audience is us. And then there's responding to what he's done. And the response in Hebrews is, let us draw near. Before, without the gospel, you couldn't have drawn near. But now, you can. But if this has all been done and finished, and then you're being told, now draw near, guess what? You can agree with the gospel. You can even celebrate the gospel and still not draw near. And that's why books in the Bible have to turn around and tell you to do it. So you can be a Christian here today who thinks the gospel is the greatest thing that ever happened. It is good news. And still be staring through binoculars at God. Far from experiencing his nearness. And there's consequences here because in drawing near, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. It's let us draw near, verse 23 in Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another, right? In Hebrews 10, then all the way over in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith chapter, right? All these examples, these provoking examples of those who live by faith. Then Hebrews 12, this encouragement comes. Therefore, since we're surrounded by all these great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. 
You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Those are all consequential elements, aren't they? There are consequences in this world. There's running out of gas. There's your knees being out of joint. There's real weakness. There's real discouragement. Matter of fact, the reason why Hebrews has what it has in it because it's a first century setting of believers who are suffering, struggling to keep believing. That's what's going on in their lives. And the remedy to their need is draw near to God. So that all these things can occur, right? I think I put in your outline there. Drawing near is essential to rescuing us from our vulnerability to wavering, discouragement, weights and sins that entangle failing endurance, weariness and faint-heartedness, drooping hands, weak knees, and crooked paths. All those experiences are going to be part of our lives, and God's remedy for it is the nearness of God being our good and being our remedy. Now, what's interesting, you want to be sobered by this passage. This passage moves its way into strengthening one another. So my drawing near definitely is about me and my life and my walk and the needs that I have. But my drawing near also is about you and your needs and your life and you being strengthened and you being encouraged. And so that means that your drawing near is about my life and about that person's life over there. The the people that are gathered around you and the people you greeted on the way in and the people who live with you in your house. Your drawing near touches their lives too. That's pretty sobering. Because if the church is weak, ineffective, if the church is wandering, discouraged, struggling in its faith, my drawing near is having an effect on your issues in those categories. And that's what Hebrews is trying to tell us. Yes, this is about your walk, but this is about our walk together. So drawing near is consequential. There are consequences to drawing near. There is benefit to drawing near and there is problems to keeping God at a distance. And so that's what I want to get to today. I want to get to forgetting and forsaking God. Now remember, we draw near in a setting of war. That's the setting that you and I live our lives in. I know it's, it's easy to forget that. Real live bullets, real shots being fired. A real war in the heavenlies and upon this earth is taking place. Now now think for a moment because we can get lost in this war. The term I was praying, told the guys the other night, I was just praying and this whole message just kind of fell out of heaven on me Monday night in prayer. And and the term the machines of war came to mind. These machines of war. Right? I mean, you go back, if you study history, you're a history buff. There's all these machines of war. You know, spears were machines of war. And bows and arrows really gave an advantage to people once they figured out how to, I can, I can kill you at a distance. Bows and arrows. And then guns. And then artillery. Today we've got nuclear weapons. We've got all these different machines of war. But they all have one goal in mind. Many machines, one goal. To kill your enemy. To take your enemy out. That's the one goal. No matter what the machine of war is, it's got one goal in mind. 
so it is in the kingdom of God as well. We live in a war zone. There is a real enemy. And there are many machines of war. And there's many settings where the people of God have fought these battles. Now, whether we zoom in to the machines of war in the Garden of Eden, there was a war that broke out in the Garden of Eden. It didn't involve a lot of people. An enemy and Adam and Eve. Right, fast forward to the land of Canaan and there's all these battles for the people of God to fight in the land of Canaan. Fast forward into the New Testament. Fast forward into church history. Stand upon the land of America and the American colonies and what God was doing and the wars that broke out spiritually and the drifting that took place. Or stand today in, Western, in the Western world and see the wars that are taking place in the kingdom of God. All kinds of machinery in those settings. One goal. To separate you from God and to keep you from him. One goal. That's all. One goal. Whether it's Adam and Eve to separate them. And God said the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And we all know that didn't mean cease to exist. That meant you will be dead to me. You will be separated from me. What was the goal of the enemy? Was to separate them from God. One machine, well, many machines, one outcome. And it's not any different today. You and I face an enemy who is after one thing. He wants you to forget and forsake God. That's his whole goal in your life. Now, be careful that you don't get caught in the machines and miss the main point here. The enemy knows... That if he can keep you from God, keep you from God's nearness, keep you from closeness to God, right? He's going to strip you of what drawing near does for you, right? In drawing near, we gaze upon God. We come to know God. We, We digest those spiritually rich truths and they become us and they take over our lives. They change us. And that's the one thing the enemy doesn't want you to experience. Now, I want to make a point of this today, and I don't want to drift off into this point. It's a very lively point, and I'm going to try and resist, but many of us as Christians live in this war fighting at the wrong address. We fight battles that are not the main battle. We're fighting secondary issues, and we're lost in them, and we don't even realize that we are, right? Let me just ramp you up here a little bit. If your war is located at the address of smoking, drinking, Sexual immorality, lying, R-rated movies. Because you think the warfare is about moral choices. You are already unaware of what the machines of war are after in your life. The enemy is not after whether or not you smoke or not. He's not after whether or not you drink or not. That's not what he's after. He's after one thing. The second you lose sight of that, you're going to fight for the wrong thing and you're going to put all your machinery in the wrong location. And you're going to resist in the wrong way. And you might be resisting in some categories in a decent way and losing the war, right? You can never smoke, never drink, always go to church, always be honest, treat people right, serve, et cetera, et cetera. But if you do not get around God and draw near to him, to know him, to delight in him, and enjoy him, and treasure him above everything else in your life, 
you have lost the war. Even if on the outside, you look like you're living pretty sharp. Because he's after one thing, and it's not whether or not you got a pack of cigarettes in your pocket. It's not about whether you were tanked Friday night and showed up here on Sunday morning. Congratulations. That's not what he's after. He wants to separate you from God. He wants to help you forget about God and to eventually forsake God altogether. That's what he has in mind. All right, turn to Jeremiah chapter 2 with me. Let's learn about forgetting and forsaking God. Jeremiah chapter 2. All right, you're <clears throat> nearly 600 years away from the coming of Christ. You're in an Old Testament setting here. God's people who belong to him, who, as Peter led us through Exodus, God has brought these people to himself. They are his. They are to be near him. They are to be experiencing him. They are to be relating to him and communing with him. This is why God has brought them. But the prophets show up because there's a waywardness in this. They have become distant from God. They have become far from God, and God is sending the prophet to correct that. So this is the setting into which God is speaking to his people. Remember, now it is just a helpful tip. When you read the Bible, be careful that you don't treat it like it's a document written to anybody everywhere all the time. It's written into a certain context, and it's written to people who belong to God. So when you're talking to somebody who doesn't belong to God and they're lost, you know, don't, don't just pick this up like it's a, it's a rule manual. Like, you need to be getting on board with the rules here. Well, you know, wait, wait, wait. First things first, they're not even God's people. That might need to take place first before you go applying all the rules. All right? So when you read the Bible, this is written to God's people, which is lamentable in many ways as we read this. Chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest And all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Right? This is God's people. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless Worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits in a land of drought and deep darkness in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. All right, you get this picture here? God has a people. This is a story of God rescuing a people out of the bondage of Egypt. 
and bringing them to himself. And they trusted him and followed him out of their captivity and dwelt with him as God miraculously provided for them. But there came a point that the living God, the sovereign, all-powerful God raises the question to his people, what wrong did your fathers find in me? That they went far from me. See, at, at some point, a people who belonged to God, who knew something of God's care and nearness and affection and communion, no longer were in that place. They were still his people, but they were far from God. Right? This is that problematic geography in scripture. This is a reality that can describe you and me. You can be a Christian here today and have God raising these same questions. What, what did you not find in me that you had to go looking elsewhere for? What, what was it that was lacking in me that made you go shopping for life somewhere else? That you went so far from me. It's interesting, the the result of this farness, God says, I don't think they said, but God says they went after worthlessness and became worthless. That'd be an interesting conversation. This is not a covenant group week, right? I don't think so. Be an interesting list, right? Can you come please bring your list of worthlessness, you worthless thing? (laughs) And we'll describe what you're pursuing right now that I don't have time for God. I can't draw near to God. I don't know how to do this series, Keith. Uh, Because why? Well, I've gone after worthlessness and man, I'm busy. Kind of big list of worthlessness that I just, I set my alarm early. There's a lot of worthlessness to get to every day, you know, when you're far from God. That's what's being described here. And they really lack a sense of uh, sensitivity to this. Verse six, they did not say, Where's the Lord? Right? Remember us? This people in bondage and the God of the universe says, but you're my people, you belong to me. So I'm bringing you out of that into this so that we can live together. And then there's all this plan about a sanctuary, a tabernacle that we're going to, I'm going to be among you. I'm going to dwell with you. Oh, wow. So you brought us out for you. That's why we exist for you. And so their life starts out being about God. And somewhere along the line, God got lost. Worthless things populated their time. And God says, they didn't even think to ask, uh, where's the Lord? How many of us are just totally missing the big question of life? Are you living this thing for the Lord? Are you doing what you're doing for the Lord? Or are you just doing, just doing life? You know, doing the married thing, doing the career thing, doing the living in America thing. I'm just doing life, man. Well, where's the Lord? I don't really think about the Lord all that much. Right, even the leaders fell into this. The priest did not say in verse eight, the priest did not say, where's the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit worthless things. 
I remember last week we said, because it's, it's hard to create value in the dark. But when God says, in your light, do we see light? Right? So it's easy to get caught in a world where we're chasing after worthless things because we don't have the light of God to shine on it and say, that thing there, it's worthless. Or, or this terminology, it's, it's of no profit. That thing there will not profit you. You're freaked out about it. You're invested in it. You're manipulating people for it. You're lying to keep it in your life. And God says it's worthless and it will not profit you. See, this is what farness does to you. It turns your value system upside down. It makes you long for things and desperate for things that God, who's the only one who sees life correctly, turns around and says, that thing right there, the thing you're going you're to have a cardiac over when you're 58, worthless. Lose it. It won't bother you. You'll be fine. Lose that thing. What? Why is God so uncaring? Why is God not answering prayer? You know, we're all freaked out praying about stuff that God says, why are you begging me for something that's not worth two cents? Well, because God, I live so far from you that I have no value system. And I beg you for stuff that's worthless because to me it's so valuable. Where'd you get that idea? Well, I got it far, far away from you. That's where I got it. I hung out to where I I could still see you through the binoculars. And these people right over here were clear as a day. And they taught me how valuable this was. And so now I turn to you with my binoculars in prayer and beg you to give me that. And God doesn't seem to be available, does he? Because you want God to answer you with worthless things. God, please give me more worthless things. And God doesn't answer us. And then we conclude prayer doesn't work. You see, this is problematic all over, isn't it? Look at verse 7. Going way back, God called his people to himself. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. All right, can you just hang on to that verse for a second? We'll come back to it. I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. Now, some of us might need to break into a revelation here. Did you know God is into you enjoying things? I did say things. I brought you into a land that's got fruits and good stuff in it. And And I brought you there to enjoy it. What? I didn't know. Wait a minute, Keith. I've read the Old Testament I mean, that God is the biggest party pooper that ever existed. You start getting a smile on your face, a prophet shows up, and you're doing something wrong for sure. (laughs) But apparently not. Apparently God said, here's what I intended. I intended to bring you into a land that had good things in it for you to enjoy them. This might inform our theology of enjoyment. Keep reading. Skip down to verse 10. This is the shock of this passage. Cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see or send to Gadar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods? Even though they're not even gods. But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, 
and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Right? Quick imagery there. God says, I'm a fountain. Whatever you create is a, is a cistern that you've got to act, you know, cisterns, you had to actually fill them up. They're big containers, they were carved in rock or they were containers. So you had to go to something that was a source and then move that stuff into the container and then draw out of it. God says, you've abandoned me. I'm a fountain of life. You come to me and I just, I just gush life. I gush it all over you. I provide life to you. You come and drink and you're satisfied. Your cisterns, and heck, your cisterns are even broken cisterns. So you bring all your stuff to it, store it up so that you can go back and dip water out and satisfy your longings. But your cisterns are broken. So you fill them all up and then you go back and they had a crack in them and you come back and they're empty. And you got nothing to drink anyway. But where's the evil in this? Why do I go build cisterns? I only go build cisterns when I have forsaken the fountain. That's the only time I go build cisterns. My people have created, have done two evils. They have forsaken me. And therefore they had to go get water somewhere else. In a worthless place. Right, this is the machines of war. Now, remember, that word forsaking is a strong word. I'm going to substitute. I'm not going to substitute. I'm going to expand on the thought of forsaking. But before we forsake God, we forget God. So forgetting and forsaking, I think, are related. Forgetting is the foothills of forsaking. Right? Look in your outline there. All these events in Jeremiah are describing what God's people did when they came into the promised land, this, this land with all this stuff in it. Well, God spoke to them before they went in. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10, when the Lord, your God, brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is an interesting verse. It definitely is a warning. And it's a warning in a particular moment. And I'll elaborate on this a little bit further, but it's, it's not a warning to not go into the land. You following me here? Because this is important in how you deal with temptation. Because I'm thinking, God, if you, if you just called me for some advice, here's what I would have suggested. God, if, if this land is flooded with good cities and all these things and the people are going to partake of them and then they're going to forget you, we just not go into the land then. All right, that would have been my counsel and advice. Apparently, God wasn't into monasteries and turning all his people into monks because God was going to send them into the land. And there were some things in there that God said were good. And he said in Jeremiah, he wanted them to enjoy those things. But here's the warning. When you begin to enjoy those things and those things begin to fill you up, then take care that you don't forget me. 
This is a human condition. This would be one for us to be wise about today and not just think this applied to the people on the plains of Moab. You and I have the ability that when something touches us in a fulfilling way, where we feel satisfied by it, it did something enjoyable to us, in that moment we face a temptation to begin to forget God. That's what this verse teaches So before we ever get to the place of forsaking God, we have long been forgetting about God before we ever forsake him. I mean, how do you think this played out, right? Deuteronomy 6, everybody huddle up, cross the Jordan there, that's the promised land. Can we get a huddle real quick here? We we need to talk about some things before we go in. Okay, when you go in, this is going to be the temptation. There's a lot of cool stuff here, guys. it's, It's Toys R Us on steroids. So you're going to run in there. You're going to be out of control. You're going to be knocking people over, elbowing kids in the face. And you're just going to want more and more and more toys. Okay, but just be careful. Be careful that when you go in and you start to enjoy these toys, that you don't forget God. All right, so, I don't know, Monday they go in. How many of y'all think that they forsook God by Tuesday? Wednesday? Thursday? I don't think they forsake God for a very long time. Matter of fact, when you find the prophets speaking to the people of God, some of the great annoyance for God is how much they have married together God and this stuff. Right? So they don't go from, hey, we're, we're the Yahweh worshipers to Baal worshipers. Yahweh, never heard of the guy. Faithful to Baal, baby. It's us and Baal from now on. No, 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 no. They, they hung out with God. They kept God in their back pocket. Matter of fact, they tried to just import some of Baal's stuff and keep God. So along the way, this is the temptation that you and I guard ourselves from. If you're guarding yourself from going from, I'm in love with God to I'm a devil worshiper and I've built up a fortress to keep that from ever happening, you're a fool. Because the enemy is not fighting at that place. He just wants to get you to take one step towards forgetting. Just a little less lively of a connection to God. A little less real and vibrant. Maybe one more step. And over the course of a lot, a lot of patient time, you just take a little bit of forgetfulness into another place of forgetfulness, into another place of forgetfulness. Not complete forgetfulness, just a a little bit more forgetfulness, a little bit more forgetfulness. Until next thing you know, you got to take your binoculars out to get a look at God. And, and if you're a Christian in America, you think binoculars are normal equipment for Christians. Because that's what everybody sounds like. When we all get together, we all compare this little bitty God that we can all see barely over the horizon. He's tiny and he really doesn't do much to help us. And he hasn't really transformed my life and I'm not willing to cash everything in for him. And I do little things because I'm afraid to do big things because I've got this bitty little tiny God at the end of my binoculars. And you got a tiny God testimony? Listen to my tiny God testimony. And we talk to each other about this tiny God of ours. And so it gets normal to think that's what normal Christians do. They stare at God from a huge distance. They have a very low opinion of him and he's very small. And then we try and live. And we're far from God. But it all happened by a little bit of drifting here. Drifting in a land that had a lot of distractions in it. And this is really helpful for us. 
Because if there's ever a people who lived in a promised land, it is modern Americans. We live different than the rest of the world. Let's face it. It's just a fact. And interesting here, right? Here's the things to enjoy in the promised land. And remember, they were to enjoy, Jeremiah 2, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. All right, well, what was on the menu? What was on the menu in this good promised land? And are these things bad? Great and splendid cities are on the menu. Houses full of good things are on the menu. Cisterns, olive trees, eating to satisfaction are all on the menu in the promised land. Now consider that it was God's plan to give these things to his people. How does this inform your theology of earthly enjoyment or pursuing pleasure or having desires for things? You don't have to come in here this morning and stop being human. You desire some things. You enjoy some things in life. You enjoy some things much greater than others. Right? I'm pretty sure you're going into the land. There's these great and splendid cities. All right, somebody just loved that. They just got an architecture mind. They just love it. They just wandered in cities. Wow, look at this. While other people just love vineyards and olive trees. Like they give a rip about cities. They enjoyed that, right? So there's a variety of enjoyment here in the room with us. You enjoy some things. And you know what I find about Christianity? I find as a means to try and fix this problem of our drifting from God, we've kind of created this no enjoyment policy. Nobody enjoy anything. Hey, you look like you're having a little bit too much fun. Stop all that. That obviously is ungodly, right? Because, you know, it didn't happen at the altar. You didn't have a Bible in your left hand and you were jumping up and down enjoying that thing. Well, you know, that's not what's here. And that violates the fact that God created you to enjoy things. You are wired to enjoy things, right? It just, it's given away. You have taste. You have taste buds. Right? You know my theology of taste buds. I won't go into that. Color. You know, the whole world could be in black and white, but, but it's in color. There's beauty. That you and I see beauty and it, it draws us to it. It does something. We have the capacity to look at something beautiful and to want to look at it again. Music. Sex. God created sex to be pleasurable. Right? We don't... We don't just duplicate, right? We're not amoebas. It's like, you know, there's Keith and there's another Keith. Oh, there's another one. It's like God created sex and he made it pleasurable. He intended it to be enjoyed. There's adrenaline that comes out of our bodies in moments. There's, there's comfort and refuge that we enjoy and we experience these things. These are all created human capacities. They're in our lives with a purpose and... I mean, everyone I just described are all hardwired to stuff of earth. Right? Your, your taste buds. I don't know how, how heavenly you've made those lately, but they're wired to the stuff of earth. Right? The things that grow and the seasonings that get put on them and you cook them a certain way and your taste buds go, wow, that's happening right there, baby. 
That's not heavenly. That's not, you know, I, I was just caught up into the third heaven and my taste buds went, wow. Apparently, you don't have to go to the third heaven to experience enjoying your taste buds. Sex. Sex is hardwired to stuff of earth. To the opposite sex. The pleasure involved God created is an earthly experience. And it's good. And God wants us to enjoy it. There's the comfort of, you know, the Bible describes things like the, you know, the shade tree and God being our, our comfort and in the shadow of your wing. What, what's the shadow about? Well, you know, if you grew up in a desert climate and you stood out in the sun all day long and it fried your brains, physically there was comfort called shade and you, you got to enjoy that. There was the warmth of a blanket because physically you were experiencing something. There's stuff in this world God intended for us to enjoy. Prohibiting the enjoyment of things is not a remedy. And if you read your Bible very well at all, you, you reject it even when you say, amen, brother, amen. Nobody doing nothing. I'm all for that. Let's just live for God, man. Enough of this mamby-pamby Christianity stuff. Let's live for God. Let's sell everything and do nothing. I'm with you, brother. When's the altar call? I'm going to be the first one down here. Um, but something inside your heart is saying, that ain't right. That's not right. That's not right. Right? I don't know if you were supposed to enjoy the Patriots beating the Seahawks. I'm not sure. I shared that with you last week, but I kind of enjoyed it. So it's, there's enjoyment in these places. Are we supposed to repent of enjoying those things? Or has God actually made us to be able to enjoy some things in this world? Now, let me give you a warning. I'm going to chase a rabbit for a second here. Here's a warning about false remedies. And I think I've listed three warnings here. And I list these because if you've subscribed to these, you are fighting the war at the wrong address. Stop wasting your Christian life fighting the war at these addresses. Warning number one. Some Christians make the mistake of seeing pleasure as a problem. Thus, they create a theology of no pleasure. Everything, you should be warned about everything. Stay away from everything. Everything, everything could lead to something. That's what it sounds like. Now, now don't blow this off. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a warning, right? Does the Bible warn you about things? All right, and you're a fool if you don't know that. But the same Bible that warns you about that land doesn't prohibit you from going into it. Right, God is not afraid of having temptation to the left and him to the right. And you as a God-glorifying being say, I want him over that. God doesn't have to have you remove yourself from every human appetite, every temptation, and live on the side of a mountain by yourself so that finally you can choose God. Got nothing else to choose, might as well choose God. So this idea that let's just stay away from everything. Uh, the real problem in the abuse of pleasures is not that we violated some pleasure code, but that we've forgotten God. You, know, you want to know why we overindulge in all this pleasure? It's because we've underindulged in God. 
We've tasted so little of him. Been near to him so poorly that everything, everything looks attractive to us. Listen, the nearness of God fixes a lot in our lives. The problem here is not whether or not you stayed away from something. The problem in life is whether or not you got near God. Warning number two, the Pharisees were Hall of Fame examples of religious people with a pleasure code approach to religion. There were more rules that the Pharisees had created than you will ever, ever. If you want to read on the Pharisees, they're kind of entertaining because they got to the realm of ridiculous. It was one rule upon another rule upon a third rule to keep you from breaking the first rule. Everything was about a code. Everything was about making sure you did the right thing and avoided the wrong things. But Jesus stood with that generation and said, you know what, you guys? You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You don't, you don't know me. Even though you're busy doing all the right things, you don't know me. Right, John 16, this is an interesting indictment, verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Jesus warned his disciples. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They don't know God, but they know their code. They know their code so well that they'll know when you break it and they'll know when to kick your butt out. But they don't know God. You understand you can know your code and not know your God all at the same time. And if you grew up in church, where do you think you got your script for your code? You got it from church and you got it from church people. So you figure I just get busy about my code, living up to the code, doing the code. And I'm good, right? I'm living a good Christian life then. You may be nowhere near God. Live in your code, but you're not near God. All right, warning number three. It's easier to learn codes than it is to draw near to God and to know him in a deep, impacting way. All right, listen, there are lots of Christian codes. If you've got a pencil, you might want to write some of these down because I didn't put them in your outline. Afraid you'd hire an attorney and use them against me at some point. (laughs) There are lots of Christian codes Christians who live far from God, but very near their codes. All right, see if you can find your code as I go through a list here. There are clothing codes. And they cover things like modesty as well as style. There's a code. And I'm not saying whether that's a good or bad thing. Just saying that some people got a code in that category, come to life over that issue. There are makeup codes. Uh, This used to be much more real, right? Modern church, no one pays attention to makeup as much. There are music codes. There are alcohol codes. There are entertainment codes. There are homeschooling codes. There are parenting codes. There are King James Bible only codes. (laughs) All right, everybody who's laughing isn't a King James Bible only person, but the King James Bible guy right now has got issues with me. You can come see me afterwards. (laughs) There are political party codes. There are dietary codes. There are hostess Twinkie codes and organic grown only codes. (laughs) Are you aware 
that you can be near your code. Passionate, informed, apologetic. You've got reasons why this is the way to do it. And you feel so strongly, somehow you've turned those reasons into anybody who violates this code. I'm not sure you're going to hell, but it's going to be warm wherever you do go. You're not in the code here, dude. You mean near your code and not near your God. No intimacy with him. No enamoring. No loud worship. Not spilling over affections. No gazing. No communing with God. No delighting in him. But you just let somebody step over the line of your code and you come to life like a badger. Well, I mean, let me pick on a safe code, right? Because there's some codes that... Listen, all these things are good things. I'm just trying to get you to go from good to God in this moment, all right? And it gets to fight the battle in the category where it matters the most. You can be very devoted to your code and yet not devoted to God. And in the church, certain categories are a little more easy to give into than others. You can be very devoted to your family. You should be. But you need to ask yourself a question. You who value your wife, and you're devoted to leading well in your home, and your children, that's a biblical, and you draw from that biblical insights, things that God has said are important. And you pursue those things and value those things. Well, my question for you, what's your communion with God like? What's the exchange between you and God like? What's your affection toward God like? How loud and blown away by God were you this morning as you were sitting in this place and songs about the greatness of God were being sung? When you got a chance to read something, do you only pick up a book on parenting? Do you only pick up a book on being a husband? Or do you just pick up a book on God being God because you delight in God being your God and all that he's done for you and who he is and who he'll be for all eternity, which, by the way, you won't be married and your children aren't going to be enamored with you in heaven. Now, you pick your code. Whatever your code is, you can be very close to your code and be very far from your God. That's not what God's calling us to. Let me close with this thought here. And this is, this is, my, this is my main concern. And the reason why I'm bringing up this code issue is because you can feel like if I'm fighting successfully in my code category, I'm all right. I'm all right. If, if, see, because I've got a code that's got certain values. It's not all the codes you just mentioned, but a couple of them are mine. If I'm doing pretty good in these categories, then I'm all right. Can I tell you, if you're not near to God, you're not all right. I don't care what your favorite code is. God didn't save you so that you could turn your back to him and be enamored with a code. Even a good code. Something that's going to accomplish something good in somebody else's life, including yours. And it's got some moral fiber to it. It doesn't look like what the world's doing. But you live with your back to God. He's a stranger to you. But you're a specialist in your code area. God's not interested. He saved you for you. 
He saved you to be near to him. He saved you to be enamored with him. He saved you to gaze upon him, be blown away, strengthened to have him up close so you could live your life full of faith and amazing life and energy that God gives because he's not at the end of your binoculars. He's close and effective and real and treasured and valued. Now, here's, here's, my, here's my real category of concern here. We are called to live in a land with relationships and stuff to enjoy. You are called to live in a land with relationships in it and stuff in it, and you're called to enjoy it. And if we locate the war at the address of, is that up to code? We may end up with a life full of decent things, but a forgotten God. Now listen carefully, listen carefully, more carefully than you did a second ago. When you enter the land that God's giving you, when you enter the land with wives and sons and daughters and you go about the business of being families, enjoy, enjoy that. But be careful that you don't forget me. I'm giving you that. I'm giving you the land with good things in it. Just be careful when you begin to get satisfied by those things, when those things begin to reach back into your life and provide something to you, then in that moment, be careful that you don't forget me. When you enter the land with houses and property and landscaping and maintenance and Home Depot and Pottery Barn... Enjoy. So listen, the remedy to this issue is not that you don't have anything. And you don't care about the weeds growing up all around your house. You haven't been to Home Depot in years. That's for ungodly people. I think God's cool with you enjoying things. But when you begin to enjoy those things and they begin to reach back into your life and provide something to you that touches you and is meaningful to you, then be careful that you don't forget me. When you enter the land with vacations and travel and hobbies and luxury and extra, we're one of the few nations in the world where everybody's got extra. We've got two of everything, don't we? Some people barely have the essentials, but not the land that we live in. We got extra. When you begin to enjoy those things, oh, and by the way, you're supposed to enjoy those things. Just be careful that you don't forget me. Here's my favorite category. When you enter the land with iPhones and social media and gaming and news and information and sports, Enjoy those things. Nothing morally corrupt about those things in and of themselves. But just be careful that when you begin to enjoy those things that you don't forget me. This last thought from Charles Spurgeon. He says, there are some who have abundance of temporal things given to them and they make a good use of them. So they may be thankful for them. But there are others who are carried away by these temporal things, which thus become the source of all sorts of calamities. 
A man may have a fine house and a beautiful garden, and he may be thankful for them. So far, so good. But he may fall into the sin of making a heaven of that house and garden so that they will be the cause of sin. Listen, this is the issue more than any other issue. More than your moral choices, more than you cleaning your life up, more than you doing what a good social Christian should do, more than you dealing with people in a way that you should deal with people, more than any of those things. This is the issue that the enemy wants to fight over. He just wants to separate you from God. He's fine. Treat your wife like a princess. Walk on water in some category as a noble individual. But if your God is not near to you, he has won his war. For you have made even good things to be your source of heaven rather than God. Let's stand up together. not like us, speaking to us in human terminology. It's a little overwhelming to me that the God of the universe who doesn't owe anybody the time of day starts a conversation that sounds like, was it something lacking in me that your fathers didn't find that they went elsewhere? You just close your eyes for a moment. Charles Spurgeon says, Our text reminds us that God does take notice of what men do or of what they do not do. Here, he complains. And there's a kind of mournful plaintiveness about his words. Therefore, have they forgotten me? It's not a matter of indifference to God whether men remember him or not. It seems that he does want us to remember him, to think of him and to trust and love him. And when we do not, he is vexed and grieved. At least speaking after the manner of men, we're taught to believe that it pains him at his heart so that he cries out by the mouth of his servant, the prophet, they have forgotten me, their maker, their best friend, and their greatest helper. I'm afraid, dear friends, that the accusation in our text may be brought against a very large number of us. Certainly, it can be laid to the charge of all those who have lived without thinking of God and who have never turned to him in repentance and faith and who consequently are still strangers to him. But worst of all, 
Among the Lord's own people there are, alas, some against whom this accusation can be brought. They have forgotten their God. Not not absolutely, so as to be utterly and altogether like the thoughtless sinner. Yet very sadly and grievously, so that God himself complains of them. They have forgotten me. What are you hearing God say to you this morning? Are you hearing God say that to you? You have forgotten me. Seldom are your thoughts turned to me. Seldom do you share your life's joys and ambitions and delights with me. Seldom do you celebrate the life I've given you with me. Seldom do you pursue knowing me, treasuring me, valuing me, delighting that you have me even though you may not have something else or someone else. the realities of a land of enjoyment has turned into a vast land of distraction. And we, Lord, are living at a distance from you. And it pains you, Lord, for it's not what you rescued us for. You didn't send your son to remove the barriers and pay for the price of our sins so that we could live at a distance from you did all that so that the nearness of God would be our good, that we would awaken pursuing it, eager for it, wanting, treasuring it, certainly enjoying the many, many other things that you've given us, but Lord, not enjoying them at the expense of you and your nearness in our lives. So Lord, I pray for a disturbing encounter with you today. pray for the power of your spirit to rescue us from being a people connected to so many other things but you. So many of these things aren't bad things. Lord, may we stop waiting for the label bad to be the only thing that motivates us. Your iPhone is bad. Your hobby is bad. Your sports interest is bad. Lord, these are things to be enjoyed, not at the expense of you. So Lord, I don't pray that we would be a people who hate everything. Lord, I just pray that we would be a people who treasure you above all things and pursue you and long for you and get near you, Lord. Not rarely, but often in a way that radically affects our lives. And so, Lord, whatever comes from this time that we have spent in this series, Lord, may it be that your delight gets answered and that we simply learn to be a people who live everything of our lives near to our God 
draw us to yourself? And would you rescue us from milk and honey? And let it sit in our lives, those other things, let them sit in our lives in a way that you designed for them. But Lord, may you be found in our lives the way you have longed to be. In Jesus' name. Bless you guys this week.